Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, uh, welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo and I'm one of the adult learning program managers at the Royal Academy. Um, before we begin, I just had a few notices. If you could ensure that all digital devices are switched to silent. Um, there's, please uh, refrain from any photography or recording of the event. Um, it, it will be recorded and it will, it's going to be podcast. So if you did need to listen to it afterwards, you can do that. And we're not expecting a fire alarm, but um, if one does sound, if you can uh, leave through the door actually at the front here. Um, but I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event in which our panel of speakers will be discussing the art of looking at art. The starting point for this discussion is the RA's current exhibition, Jasper John's Something um, Resembling Truth. To quote from the exhibition catalogue, John's art is a consistent reminder that truth is not given, but rather is revealed through the layered and shifting meanings uncovered through the process of perception. So when we draw on our own experiences and perception to shape the meaning that we assign to work of art, how much contextual information do we also need? Does knowledge enhance um, our experience of work of art or affect how we engage with it? And what are the different ways in which we might engage with art? These are some of the questions that our panel will be considering in the discussion tonight. Um, I'd like to introduce our panel this evening. Um, Cathy Pilkington, RA, studied BA silversmithing at Edinburgh College of Art and sculpture at the Royal College of Art, following which she was awarded the Cheltenham Fine Art Fellowship in 1998. She was elected a Royal Academician in 2014 and was awarded the Sonny Dupree Award for her work, Reclining Doll. She was appointed Professor of Sculpture at the RA Schools in 2016. She has had solo shows at Marlborough Fine Art and other recent exhibitions at the V&A Museum of Childhood and Chapter Art Centre in Cardiff. In 2017, she created a site-specific installation, Life Room, Anatomy of a Doll, in the historic life rooms of the RA schools, which travelled to Brighton University Gallery as part of the Brighton Festival, where she was the lead visual artist. She co-curated Eric Gill, the body at Ditchling Museum of Art and Craft, and presented a major new commissioned work, Doll for Petra, which explored the complex relationship of Gill's practice to his biography. Kirsty McSween um, has worked as an interpretation curator at Tate for almost 10 years, including producing the interpretation for five Turner Prize exhibitions. Most recently, she worked on queer British art at Tate Britain and the Superflex swings at Tate Modern. She has experience producing a broad variety of interpretations, such as audio guides and family trails, as well as timelines, wall texts and captions. Um, and finally, Jill Hart, who is Head of Education at the National Gallery in London and has worked in museum and gallery education since 2000. She was the MLA Museums Fellow on the Claw Leadership Programme between 2009 and 2011. And as part of the fellowship, um, Jill completed a piece of research supervised by Professor Richard Sandell at the University of Leicester's Museum Studies Department on exploring new approaches to visual art interpretation this research subsequently informed her approach to teaching and programming and has led to more recent publications on visual literacy and interpretation. And finally, our chair for tonight's event, Dr. David DeBosa. David is reader in museology at the University of Arts London and research fellow for the UAL's Research Centre for Transnational Art, Identity and Nation. He's also course leader for MA Curating and Collections at Chelsea College of Arts. So without further ado, please welcome me and join tonight's panel. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Kira, for that warm introduction. And thanks to you and your team, and Jennifer, and others who have enabled this uh, event to take place. It's my second uh, such event here at the Royal Academy. And those of you who are uh, used to these evening events will know how much these events can be great opportunities to talk about a whole series of issues, both in relation to the exhibitions, but also to address questions which are broader and more relevant to wider questions in culture. The way we're going to proceed this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is to um, draw out some of those broader questions. We're going to touch on the Jasper John show, but I'm aware that perhaps members of the audience haven't necessarily seen the exhibition, so we're not going to discuss the exhibition in detail. We're going to draw out a whole series of themes which we think are relevant for us to be able to take through these questions about interpretation. Part of our uh, debate and some of the questions that we've been debating today relates to this divide, if you like, between people who believe that the relationship between the artwork and the audience is sacrosanct, that nothing should come between the artist and the audience. So as little interpretation or words as possible. At the other end of the spectrum, we know there are other people who've been invested and worked for many years to ensure that there's a kind of democracy, if you like, in relation to the art world. And that democracy is guaranteed and secured by ensuring that everybody has a certain portion of knowledge about the artwork and the artist. It's between these two poles that many, many debates have taken place over many years in different parts, both between artists and curators and people in education or learning departments. So I'm delighted to have this distinguished panel, people of many years of experience, here to discuss these debates. We're going to start, ladies and gentlemen, by thinking about the question of biography. And in particular, we feel this is a, an important place to start because this is one of the features of the Jasper Johns exhibition. Uh, for those of you who have seen it, you will have noted that in the opening interpretation, there is reference to Jasper Johns' seven years relationship with Robert Rauschenberg. How far is that piece of information, that piece of interpretation, central to the way in which we see the rest of the show? This is something that we've been debating, and I want to just return to our panel members just to ask a few questions, not necessarily about that, but particularly about this question about biography. How much do we need to know about an artist in order to enjoy the exhibition or in order to think through the important themes of the work? I'm going to start first with Cathy, because I know, Cathy, in relation to your uh, co-curation of the Eric Gill exhibition, you've dealt with what one might say is quite a contentious uh, biography, uh, and you had to handle that in a particular way. I mean, where did you stand? What were the kinds of things that came to your mind in thinking about the creation of that, uh, that show? Um, so this was a, a, a show which was based on that question. So the question the show asked was, um, how much does the knowledge of Eric Gill's biography uh, impact on uh, our enjoyment and, of the work? And can we see the work separate to that? Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Eric Gill's work and his biography. Let's see whether the heads are nodding or... 
Um, so, so, so Eric Gill um, uh, famously uh, abused her, two of his daughters, sexually abused his daughters, and made, on one hand, the most beautiful, uh, breathtaking, some people might say, other people might say, limited um, artwork. And the show interrogated and asked questions about um, what, what, we, what can we do with that? How can we uh, uh, mount an exhibition of his work without dealing with this properly? So it was interesting because um, the context was a museum. It wasn't a, a contemporary gallery and it wasn't a, a very big public gallery in, in London either. It's actually in Ditchling in the community where Eric Gill lived and worked and where the abuse took place as well. And the reason I got involved in it, because you think, why on earth would you get in, want to get involved in this project, was because the work that I've been making over the last few years uses the doll as object and subject. And um, the director of the museum approached me with a doll that Eric Gill had made for his daughter, um, uh, Petra. And it was a carved wooden doll that he'd made for his daughter, age four. And I was incredibly intrigued, but I really wanted to see this object. This object was problematic, and it was in the storeroom, and they didn't feel that it could be shown. And it's their obligation to show their collection. So they wanted to find some way of bridging that problem, talking about that problem. And of course, it took, we had to do it very sensitively. There was a lot of research. We had symposiums about it. It was very intelligently sort of thought out and planned and put together. And Luckily, I felt like I was the right artist at the right time to do that show. Um, and I think the reason it was successful was because the artist uh, in that position was like a bridge between the public and the museum. Um, so I made an installation, but I was also involved in co-curating the Eric Gill show alongside my installation because they felt that if I was doing this installation, which was at the point that you enter the museum, you're straight into this quite heavy subject matter. Um, and they felt that any other exhibition alongside it wouldn't make sense. So we did a historical, well, it wasn't historical because I co-curated it. So you've got, you've got perhaps what the museum might do, a much more sensible historical, and then a practitioner's take on his work. You know, So I was able to pick and choose and combine, bring the audience back to the work, the way the work was made, the physicality of the work, rather than the story, which was always attached to it. So I felt very much, as we were looking through the work in the stores, that people would say, oh, look, you, for instance, you can see she's got her head turned away, she's looking over there, he can't look her in the face, and I'm thinking, no, he's looking at the formality of using the hair and he's really interested in carving the hair. And so we had this really nice sort of relationship between a narrative and then a, a practitioner's point of view. So that's how the, in a, in a nutshell, I mean, it's a, a, a long discussion, but that's how the, the um, show was built. So you took a, I'm hearing that in terms mm. of taking quite a balanced approach to quite difficult, difficult subject matter and mm. taking that approach in a way to lead back into the work, mm. but without mm. avoiding, without avoiding this, this question about, mm. about biography. Maybe I can go to Kirsten to ask you, because I know that in relation to your work at, at Tate, again, you've had to grapple with this question, perhaps not with such controversial, if I may say so, as a subject matter, but still, this question about how far we need to get at the biography of the artist in order to enjoy the work. I mean, how, how do you how do you handle that? Um, well, one of the things that we feel is really important is that um, to give people the tools to get their own meaning out of it. So there could be something in the artist's biography that a, a viewer looking at it will identify with and then make their own meaning for, from the work. But the work 
in, with the Jasper Johns, the biography I feel is very important because he it fared into his work in a direct way. But perhaps with Eric Gill, it doesn't because, as you said, he's not not able to look at somebody in the face. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a different issue. So I think when we approach things at Tate, we don't we don't needlessly bring in biography and try to give meaning to the artwork because that, that's for the viewer to make their own meaning from it. But in many ways, there are kind of histories to do with artists which have been hidden before now. So it's never been the background of an artist, like what art school they went to, has always been talked about, but not maybe somebody who they had relationships with um, or, or um, you know, where... Um, so sometimes bringing that out... So, for instance, we've just had... Uh, just worked on the Queer British Art Exhibition, and we explicitly uh, explained in that um, how people self-identified. So we never said, never gave anybody any any kind of uh, gendered or, or or sexuality that they didn't themselves identify with. But it was part or a very important part of the exhibition. Yes, I, I can hear that, and I can hear that also in relation to some of the work that Tate does in relation to thinking about people's ethnic origins or where they're born. Sometimes it's important, and sometimes it's not important. Sometimes yeah. it feeds into the work or not. So a kind of case-by-case yes. case basis. Exactly. So I think it is important. Not everybody looking at a work will know that somebody was making work that was responding to the Second World War, and it is important to put that in, where they come from, uh, where they were living, the times that they were... The living, so that kind of background, I think, is always important to mention. Jill, what, what, in terms of your experience, I mean, how how would you handle this this kind of question of where the biography sits in relation to the understanding the artwork? Yeah, um, so this is something that we we did touch on in our discussion earlier, and I think, like for me, um, biography, and as an educator, biography is important, but. I feel it's important not to lead out with biography and that it might be something that comes in further down the line. And one of the reasons that I say that is because, just to echo what Kirsty said, um, there are hidden, hidden stories that do certainly need to be teased out and allowed to rise to the surface. However, sometimes biography can um, take over and precede the actual experience of looking at the art. And when I say that, I'm thinking about the collection that I work with and artists like Rembrandt and Van Gogh, where it can sometimes be hard to actually have an experience of the art because the visitor, whether they know a little bit about the artist or a lot about them, can actually it becomes an impediment to experiencing the art because so much might be known about someone's mental state or their their bank accounts. So I think it's one of those tools that is useful to have and can shed a lot of light on an artist and their motivation, but we have to be really careful about where we position it within an interpretive journey. Yeah, and that question about you know what what people expect, and when you know as you say, people kind of having a look and, and saying, oh, it, that painting looks like that because of this moment in the artist's biography, or it looks like this because of this happened, they got married, or they this happened, they had this death, and they're thinking, well, no, that didn't happen at all. That's really really important. But to what extent do we need to follow what the audiences want in terms of 
interpretation? How far are the demands of an audience, maybe even one might say that the hunger of an audience for more information or more um, detail, how, how far do we have to follow that? That idea is coming out at the moment with the Soul of the Nation show at Tate Modern. Uh, and is it important or did it uh, influence the art that an artist was making because they were black? Um, the thing is, if what does an audience want? It's a massively successful exhibition and the audience do want to see art by black artists and, 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 and the same with, the, with queer British art. The, um, the audiences for that, both shows, are so much more diverse than the standard Tate audience. And so I think that, you know, for commercial reasons, if nothing else, it's really interesting to bring out ideas of biography when you're, when you're interpreting the art. I'm glad you spoke about diverse audiences, because this is something else we, that, that we've spoken about earlier, and the way in which we've seen audiences change over, over many years. I'm going to kind of um, uh, fess up here and say that I've, I've been in, uh, in and around, knocking in and around art institutions since the, well, the year has a 19 to begin with, so my students always laugh at that one. It's 1980-something, let me say. Been knocking around art institutions, and I have seen, as many of us have, audiences change dramatically over that, that period of time. And we can use that term diverse to describe those changes. Because the audiences have changed, both in terms of, I'd say, gender, ethnicity, questions about sexuality, um, do we think that the, if you like, the tone of the interpretation also needs to change, or at least the approach to the interpretation needs to change to, to kind of keep up, to keep up with the audiences. I don't know, Jill. I think both the tone and the format need to change um, to keep up with audiences. And, I, and just thinking about the sort of old, the more old-fashioned formats that we're familiar with and that actually still do serve a purpose, and often conversations about interpretation do seem to creel around um, labels. Everyone thinks that, or sorry, not everybody, but a lot of people think that, well, interpretation is just about labels, isn't it? But they're probably the thing that let us down the, the, the most because they're, they're sometimes the hardest things to change. And actually, with more engagement with technology, it's becoming easier to change and adapt and test different forms of interpretation. So on the subject of tone, um, I do feel that um, the, the, the idea of an authoritative voice, the use of words like clearly the artist was trying to do this, or evidently this means, mm, or it's obvious that, those are the sorts of words, the words like obvious, evident, clearly, that need to stop being used. Um, whether it's on a label or any other form of interpretation, because it can immediately shut down a thought process in the mind of a visitor, regardless of where they're from, if they don't know what it is that is being stated as being clear, obvious or evident. And I think those are the sorts of words, rather than art historical jargon, that are actually becoming problematic. So the tone does need to shift away from being authoritative to perhaps being trusted without being overly authoritative. And I think we need to start revisiting the formats so that they can be changed more easily as well. We wouldn't ever want to get rid, well, as far as I can see, we wouldn't want to get rid of the labels because from our evaluation, people will always go to the label with that, but I think there needs to be other layers of interpretation, whether that's digital or um, visitors responding, labels 
written by other people or, or in different formats. Cathy, you've got a view about of this, haven't you? As from uh, both as an artist, but also as someone who obviously visits uh, exhibitions. I mean, where, where are you in relation to the the need for the labels and the need to respond to the audience's demand for well, labels? We, we, we did speak a little bit earlier this afternoon, nicer to David. To be honest, personally, uh, my my view of interpretation is to avoid it as much as possible and to look at the work and then I might go back and refer to it later on but yeah I feel like we live in a culture where um, everyone's obsessed with biography and everyone's uh, oh, not everyone sorry but a lot of people and um, uh, there's also um, a great urge for you know tell me what to think kind of mentality going on and I think it goes right back to you know the way that we're taught at schools the way that the government kind of view the value of art and uh, uh, not as very essential and I think that a lot of people don't have the confidence to confidence to approach visual art and they and they feel they need their hand holding or they feel they need you know some work doing for them and although obviously in some cases you know in most cases we need some kind of guidelines to to approach the work um, certainly dates and and basic outlines like that historically I just feel like in fact what we had this conversation before Jill was talking about finding a way in the National Gallery of viewing the work I said this is my fantasy she explained um, uh, this idea that uh, the audience were made to sit in front of one work and spend time with it in the dark with no information and no labels and to have an experience with this work. I mean, if we believe and really think that art has a function and we need art, then we need to experience it and we need to experience it subjectively. There's so much talk, isn't there? There's so much language and art is something else. And I think that the galleries, regardless of them trying to, you know, they've got to do this, they've got to, there's so many things that you're expected to do. You have so much to cover and you're working in teams, you're working against the clock, you know, there's so much going on. And somewhere within that, you know, everyone really believes in this thing and what this thing can do. And that's what we're, we're sort of trying to get to, isn't it? To have those, to, to, for people to have those moments. And uh, I think it's a very complex and difficult thing to do, but... Yeah, there's no substitute. The, the people are there for the art, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's always has to be the, the most important yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it would be great if we try to get the message across that what you want to do to get an understanding is to spend time That's right, that's right, it. yeah. And it's counter the yeah. culture, isn't it, as well? No, it's, that's right, because yeah. people... We have seen people going around an exhibition reading the label and then glancing at the artwork and then sure, reading, yeah, spending more time with, yeah. the, with the label than yeah. actually the artwork. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I, I feel that when you say you don't look at any of the uh, labels, but that's because you are coming from an understanding. That's right. Of, it, so if an artist has been inspired by another artist, you have that knowledge yourself, so you don't need to be told it. But sure. other people... They can't for them to get to the same position as you are. Yeah. Then it's just the giving them the tools that they can spend time. Hopefully, it's always gratifying when you see somebody looking at an artwork, reading something, and then going back to it and sure. spending more time with it, and then getting gaining that kind of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because of that, you know, particularly with something yeah. like Jasper Johns. If if you have, I I wonder about how people approach it that, that don't make art, you know, because yeah. of the embedded process and the materiality and all of that going yeah. on in it. I think it's quite difficult work to get into if you don't actually, you know, if you, you don't do if that. You do, exactly, and I know when we had a conversation earlier, and we'll come on to it later, when everybody said they hate doing 
audio guides, except for me, because I make them. <laughs> but one of the things in the audio guide for the Jasper Johns is that he was took as a starting point for many of his works a photograph, and there's nowhere on the wall to see the photograph. And unless you don't know the photograph, yeah. you're not going to be able to understand where he got to and the genius of what he's doing. Yeah. So having the audio guide there in front of you, giving you the photograph, really, really added for someone who doesn't, yeah. doesn't have that knowledge. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to yeah. come back to the audio guides, but just, just bear with me for a moment. And I, I promise I don't work for Antenna Audio or anybody like that. But I am <laughs> interested in relation to the audience. Please bear with me, because I want to do a bit of a straw poll, if I may, just in the room. Just to get a sense from you, how, just in relation to this question, because we've got different views, and you know, I've been on a journey around this in my whatever many years in, in the art world, in terms of thinking, starting as a purist and saying, absolutely not, no gobbledygook from any know-all about this work. I just want to have my experience of it to becoming a know-all and writing gobbledygook and thinking, no, people need to know these things. They need to, it needs to be shared. Can I just see? I don't know if people just do me the favour of raising a hand or not um, about this question about um, about about labels and uh, in, in relation to art exhibitions. I mean, who are in the camp of uh, the purest, absolutely nothing or minimal labels? Who who would who would want to who would vote for that? Who's who in the room? Can I just see a show of hands? And be bold, be bold. Okay, all right, okay, that's lovely. Any more bids? No, great. And who who really wants to have the the labels there, the captions and the text panels and the oh right, okay, carried carried vote is carried. I think, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's an e interesting guide because it does say something to the way that we were talking a bit earlier. We may come back to that in relation to audio guides, but let's talk about audio guides just for a minute, if if we may, because I know for me, I have. I don't know how, how many times I've taken an audio guide, but it's absolutely minimum. I very, very rarely take an audio guide. I think the one time I did take one was when I was having discussions with Antenna Audio. So, um, <laughs> Jasper Johns, no audio guide for me, please. I don't want somebody in my ear while I'm trying to have what I think is a visual experience. So, I don't know, where are we on audio guides? Well, I've, I've already yeah. said that I feel that they give you another layer. And I think it's the same with the, the um, captions that you were saying, Cathy, that people like to be told what to think. But I think a good audio guide and a good label doesn't tell you what to think. It just gives you the tools, and then you can think and make your own judgments. Yeah. Um, but it just gives you that extra, if you don't have I mean, Jasper Johns is such a good example of where the audio guide, I think, worked really well, because there was nothing on the wall that told you that you know, Duchamp was such an important influence. Well, it did tell you that, but then it showed you a little, in a little bit more detail if you weren't sure what um, you know, Duchamp's Mona Lisa looked like, yeah. or that, 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 that it was. So it's, and, and the other thing as well, that you're not forced to yeah, that's listen what I was going to, to say, it. That yeah. It's not inflicted on you, is <laughs> no. it? And you can skip as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but what, what you do have to make sure from somebody making it is that uh, people don't feel that the only important works are the works covered by the audio guide um, or covered by the labels because so you don't think well the most the key work in this room is this one that's being talked about and that may not be the the reason why it's got an audio stop it may be that there's 
something else, some sketches associated with it or something like that. that yeah, that's a really important point to make, I think, because there's some people talk about the audio guide as being an alternative map of the space. And then what you'd get is in some, particularly when these you know, exhibitions are quite crowded, sometimes they are here at the Royal Academy and elsewhere, and then you get kind of two groups of people. You've got one group of people who are marching around the exhibition looking at labels or looking at the works, and you've got another group of people who are marching from audio guide point here to audio guide point there. And you know they're, they're all trying to cover the same space in, in, in different ways. So you have an advantage if you don't take the audio guide because you just stand in front of all the other works that aren't on the audio. <laughs> yeah. so there's no crowds. So. And try and listen in to somebody who's got it on quite loudly. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I don't take audio guides to go around all that often myself, but I think they're an absolutely vital part of a visiting experience, um, as much for the collection as for a temporary exhibition. But they're also uh, an opportunity to really tease out interpretation, vital interpretation messages that it's only possible to go so far with in writing. And the, the most successful example that I can think of in recent years um, at the National Gallery is the Rembrandt, the late years exhibition. Did anyone in the room see that exhibition? Did any of you actually go round that exhibition with the audio guide? A couple of a couple of nods. Um, so I'll reveal to you a couple of the things that went on behind the scenes of putting that together. Because back three, three, four years ago now, we went through quite an extensive debate about how to make sure that was a seamless visitor experience in terms of all of the different layers of interpretation that we wanted to pull together. And um, as a result of that, about three different key messages were used across every single different format, from the labels on the wall to the room panels to the the audio guides, the actual events that were programmed for it. And one thing that we worked on really closely with the curator of that exhibition was, okay, let's avoid, and this is the first, I think this was a real success story for us as a cross, a cross sort of team working. We managed to really successfully avoid writing statements on the wall like, and here's an example of Rembrandt at the height of his powers as an etcher. And there is a danger with an artist like Rembrandt to just basically write things like that. Here's another example of how great he was. And instead, we kept going back to the curator and saying, but how? how why is that? You've got to, we have to be writing, but why is this so good? And why is this such a good example of his technique? And why is this such a good example of how that work relates to this work? And the real success there was in answering the, what, the, the, the sorts of questions toddlers would ask you, the, well, well, why, why, why? And then also the, yeah, and so what, why should I care? And I remember one of the discussions that we had with the director at the time, Nick Penny, was, well, we don't want people necessarily to leave this exhibition feeling uplifted and happy. There are moments where we might want them to feel like they've been punched in the guts. And I think that's important. And we were sort of touching on this earlier, that every single act of interpretation has to be different. And sometimes the process can kill it if you allow the process to become too formulaic. And sometimes, yeah, we do want people to feel uplifted, but there's nothing wrong with wanting to really sort of hit someone at a more, not literally, <laughs> at a more kind of painful emotional level too, if the work requires it, and we felt that it did. So that was something that was sort of lurking underneath the, the messages in the audio guide as well. 
Oh, thanks for that, Joe. I do love those behind-the-scenes uh, stories about how things work in, in museums and trying to get a sense of, well, where do you get from a discussion about the, you know, the curatorial team deciding on what work's going to be there on the walls and trying to get loans from different uh, institutions to how actually do we get to these little bits of texts on the wall and that what kind of decisions are made, what kind of fights are fought, you know, how much blood is there on the carpet or the marbled floors of, of, of these institutions. It's, I know the processes have changed over the years uh, and in relation to um, labels at one point were written by the erudite curators and then the interpretation team were really there almost like editors to make sure everything was spelt correctly and the grammar was, the grammar was there. But things have been changing over the years. Um, and I, I, I wonder um, to what extent or how useful or how valuable that the changes that have happened are. I mean, um, Kirsten in, in, in Tate, in terms of the group um, and the different approaches which are now taken uh, um, to uh, interpretation, um, how, um, how much have things changed? And what is the, the dynamic, if you like, uh, between curators and interpretation and um, other things which are going on in learning, because I know in Tate we talk about learning actually more than simply just interpretational education. Um, one of the big changes that's happened is that we used to be called interpretation and education and now we're learning and I think that kind of says a lot, not necessarily I mean, it's not necessarily positive for interpretation because we're merged as learning, but I think it's interesting that we are seen as part of learning, and that gives us a, a particular relationship with the curators because we are seen very definitely as a kind of filter from their the knowledge that they have as kind of subject experts, and we can say, but we're approaching this from a point of view of visitors and from learning and um, it, on the whole they do respect our expertise in that and I think that we do there tends to be a different approach from exhibitions and the free displays because um, although we do say to the curators they aren't writing these texts for their peers they are for visitors. There is often a, they have a particular story that they need to tell through the through the exhibition, and um, so as you said, you do have fights. We do, yeah. Sometimes it's a kind of series of toing and froing and kind of compromises, but I think that um, as a whole, they they do understand that that um, we are coming from things from a respectful to both the visitors and the curator's point of view. Um, from in displays, we have more leeway, so we do write text ourselves, um, and uh, they're working very closely with the curators for different displays as well, and and increasingly producing other forms of interpretation, like using the audio guides in the in the collections and um, recordings of artists um, talking um, about about their practice and images of kind of artists in their studios. So. Um, one of the things that we've started to do at Tate Modern with the new building is we've got some interpretation spaces. So interpretation used to always be part outside the displays on the concourses, and now it has much more of a place inside the, the, the displays, um, which kind of varies from, from a, a display about 
materiality, then we've got things that you can actually, materials that you can touch that artists have used, or photographs of, of um, artists in their studios. So not text-based, but kind of other forms of interpretation that we're being given much more that space. And it could be a sign of kind of new directors, new directors much more audience-focused rather than necessarily focused on primarily on the artworks and the artists. Yeah. I think that's, that's the, th just to pick up on some things that you said there, like this, the idea that um, interpretation is uh, sort of trying to build that bridge between understanding of the artwork or the thing that's being interpreted and an understanding of the audience. And that's a very different form of expertise than having a subject specialist expertise. So that, I think, is sometimes where the tension can arise. It's not completely impossible to get over it, as we've been discussing earlier, but there is, it's, interpretation is such a hotly contested thing in most organisations because everybody wants a piece of it or everybody wants to own it, but it's, it doesn't quite fully comfortably sit within curatorial, I don't think, because it isn't something that only requires a subject specialist knowledge. So there's a lot of debate and yeah. a lot of different approaches actually as to how to do it as well. A lot of interesting approaches outside London as to how to get interpretation right. And, and then often, and it'd be interesting to hear Cathy's input in this, when you're working, say, on something like the Turner Prize or um, we've, we have a display called Art Now where when we say the subject specialist, but the curator for contemporary arts doesn't necessarily know anything about the art or the artist. So they're having to, to um, we're having to produce the, the, in very much in kind of conversation with the artists and then come up with something that not only the curator is happy with and interpretation team is happy with, but the artist is happy with as well. What about that, Cathy? The, or not, the, the, sometimes. The artist's <laughs> voice and the extent to which artists that you know or you yourself in these situations want to get involved in that, in that process, that argument, uh, that it, struggle. It must be much handier for you when the artists are dead. <laughs> Easier. <laughs> it, it depends on their estates. Sometimes they're a bit... <laughs> yeah, because uh, they can be quite awkward artists, can't they? <laughs> um, um, well, I guess the, 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 the recent project that I worked on, um, I was very involved in the interpretation and that was surprising for me because I guess I got opportunity to do something that I didn't know whether I'd be able to do or not and found that I had much more to say for myself than I had initially thought. So that, I think that was really interesting for the curator and really interesting for me and I think that, that the whole sort of case of artists, curators and curators working with artists in that way is really it's it, you know it's it's very current, isn't it? And it's very it's enlivening lots of um, historical collections, isn't it? Contemporary artists coming in, responding to the collections, and doing interventions in the museums. It's a great way of of getting interaction with the public and and really kind of um, teasing out real relevance and. Um, it's an important uh, yeah. interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That isn't necessarily historical and can be very subjective, and and surprising things can happen. I think um, so. It's very important for us to work together, isn't it? We both kind of really need to listen and talk to each other 
Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, rather than the harmonious uh, end we're coming to in this, this conversation, I was quite enjoying the tension and, and the sense that, you know, people actually do fight for something in institutions because a lot of the work, I mean, it's a bit like a swan, isn't it? And, you know, we come into these spaces, they're so graceful and so beautifully put together and everything, and we don't see the fight and the struggle and the hard work and the battles that have gone on underneath to just get to that state of kind of beautiful, easy uh, rooms to glide through. So I'm, I'm glad of the opportunity to hear both about the, the tension and the arguments and the things that people feel they have to fight for, as well as the resolutions uh, which are reached. There's something new in the, in the debate now, though, isn't there? Because now the, the, the great public are beginning to have even more of a say. It's not just an argument or, or a discussion uh, between curators and artists and people in education, learning, interpretation. Uh, members of the public have their mobile phones, they have apps, uh, they have Instagram. Uh, we know there are, there are chat rooms and all kinds, I don't know if they talk about chat rooms anymore, but there are all kinds of things going on where people are having public discourse. And this question about interpretation now has kind of leaked, could I use that term, is, is now outside of the shuttered you know, corridors and rooms of, of curators, etc. And now the, the, public, the public have a say. I know in, in different ways we've had different experiences of this. I mean, is this something to be wary of or is this something to embrace? Gia, embrace, you think? I think. Um, so, and, and without saying too much, I, it was uh, two years ago, maybe just over two years ago that the National Gallery finally um, allowed people to take photographs in the building. And I can remember the outcry. Uh, it was as if, I mean, it was really, people were calling it the biggest change we've ever seen. <laughs> and, and now, of course, everyone's forgotten all about it. And everybody's walking around at all times with phones and so forth. And it's not as big an issue as it used to be, I suppose, because all the staff have adapted to it and understand how to help people um, get the most out of their visit instead of, you know, standing in front of someone with sticking a phone up in front of a picture and blocking everyone else's view. So uh, habits have slowly shifted. We actually ran workshops at the time, how to use your phone in the gallery, and we're encouraging people to work with us so that we could kind of basically encourage a more discrete use of um, phones or one that wasn't as so disruptive to other people. But two years on from that now, um, we've got Smartify, an app that can be downloaded onto a smartphone and visitors can use it. It's very, it's actually again very discreet. There might be some people in this room who think this is appalling, but it's possible to hold it up to a painting in the gallery and very quickly get information on the screen of your smartphone that tells you about the picture. And what I've noticed watching members of the public use this and having tried it myself is that it's actually quite a good way of using tech to support the experience of looking at a painting. Because there might be a moment where everyone is looking at their screen, which is, of course is not what we want visitors to do, but at all times they're guided back to looking at the picture. And that's a very big difference between two years ago, everybody walking about just taking pictures 
of everything, uh, taking a quick picture of the painting and then a picture of the label and moving on. Whereas Smartify is giving everyone the information that they want. It's also been done in such a way that we can update and change that information quite quickly if we wanted to. But people are also looking back at the artwork on the wall. So I think that we've made quite a bit of progress there. And then Instagram is another really interesting thing for us because something that we've just recently begun to realize is it's, it's a really visual piece of social media and a lot of us were a little bit grumpy about the fact that the gallery was publishing pictures from the collection with huge long art history essays underneath them and it seemed a bit unnecessary in terms of information but what we've been discovering looking at the analytics on this is that the people out there in the world who are on the receiving end of this love the art history lesson. They actually are responding more and telling us that they want those big chunks of information that can be read and digested on the phone or wherever you happen to be. And that's actually been completely contradictory to what we thought and actually probably contradictory to how Instagram was supposed to have been used. But th these are really interesting ways in which we're using tech, I think, to um, share information about the collection, but also enhance the experience of looking at art. I think the second point, enhancing the experience of, of looking at art, to expand that with Instagram, I think something that Instagram is doing that's really interesting is outside the gallery, I think people are becoming a lot more sophisticated with their kind of understanding of visual language and are, and are going around to actually framing almost their everyday life and everyday objects, a bit like Jasper Johns and his broomsticks and taking photographs of those and then putting this, curating their own lives in that way very visually. So not that, so in a way, not the texts that the, the, that your put, National Gallery is putting yeah. onto Instagram, but actually presenting things in a very, very visual way and living, having much more sophisticated kind of understanding of, of, of visual culture. And I think perhaps people maybe are taking that back into the gallery when they go into the gallery. I mean, you certainly, I think, I feel perhaps this certain um, art is being commissioned and, and, and curated in a way that makes it Instagrammable and kind of people yeah, visit to the gallery square. to yeah 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 <laughs> to 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 do a selfie with the lights in the Davines at Tate Britain or or on the swings or or whatever the something oh, yeah, the big bum in t in the Turner Prize. Is this a new word for me? Instagrammable. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to use it all the time. Kathy, <laughs> um, do you have you used it? Embracing yeah, it? Yeah. So, or? well, I, I re I've really historically, I really, really hate social media and won't have anything to do with it. But about three years ago, I started doing Instagram because the painter in the studio opposite to me came into me, and he is, was worse than me in ranting about technology. And he just said, he's northern as well, like me. He says, Kathy, you've got to get on Instagram. You've just got to do it. It's brilliant. And I thought, well, if Paul's doing it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I started, and I was amazed, actually, at how interesting it is for a visual artist. And it's almost like, it's like a kind of guerrilla thing that's happened between artists in studios, I think, as well as everything else that's going on, where suddenly you can interchange with each other and cut out the, 
thing, obstacles between you. You're just straight in there, and it's very um, informal as well. So it's more informal than a website, you know, because most artists now have got websites, haven't they? And they didn't have 10 years ago. It was distinctly uncool to have a website, I think, and now it's like you, you have to have one. Um, so that's really, really interesting, and I think that the kind of communications you get on Instagram all the time are, uh, uh, as an artist, I think, really, really useful, and um, for... Um, ideas for, I, th I think shows are curated on the back of people who meet on Instagram. Um, I think sales happen for artists on the back of Instagram. And I think just your audience and pe people like, you know, just anybody can talk to anybody, can't they? You know, so you can start having a conversation. You know, I have conversations with students that are studying and things like this happen. Um, it's, it's really, really interesting, yeah. I, I also think that, um, that audiences, visitors being able to come in and record, record and capture things and then share it with their own audiences. So that the idea our audiences also have their own audiences. So uh, this, this sort of old-fashioned idea of an expert transmitting information to a row of people sitting in front of them and that's it. It's this, the linear one way, now I'm going to tell you everything about this thing on the wall behind me. Those days are so long gone because the people in the audience can be sharing whatever they want, opinion-wise, with their own, aud own audiences out there in the world and capturing images of pictures as they go through the building. And I like to think, and this is perhaps me showing my naive idealism, that the, the fact that visitors can be writing, frankly, honestly, and, and in their own opinionated way about what our art might mean can in some way, over time, influence our own voice because it might actually help contribute to the softening, the what, maybe a dialing up on the warmth and the openness of our voice when speaking to the world in the way that we want to speak to them because it's really easy with the best will in the world when you work in a, a, on behalf of a national institution to always sound cold and authoritative, even when the principles and values have been decided as being what well, we have to be more warm and cuddly. Actually, I think that's when the audience can influence us um, by this use of things like Instagram, actually. Your initial question to me in this section was about how things have changed over the last few years. And one of the big changes have been this institutional warming up. So we now have official tone of voice guidelines and every Tate employee has to go to a tone of voice workshop and be indoctrinated in the friendly yet authoritative <laughs> <laughs> Tone of voice, so um, and it, you know it's kind of being embraced, and it it, it makes our job m much more straightforward because we can say uh, uh, doesn't adhere to the tone of voice guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> Try it this way. I um, feel like I might need to go on some of that training sometimes. So. <laughs> but it's people from the shop to the obviously the yeah anybody who communicates with members of the public mm. to. Yeah, to warm us up a bit. I mean, so much, so much changing. I mean, it's interesting to sit in this this room full of these paintings because so much is changing. Yet the, the the paintings stay stay the same. I want to before we finish, I'm just going to kind of cast out. We're going to go to um, some questions in a moment, hopefully to get some questions uh, from you. So hopefully, um, I'm going to 
just warm things up a bit to uh, uh, make it really open for questions. But before, before we go to that, I just want to come to one, one final thing to, to talk about. And this is the other ways in which institutions have warmed up, in fact, and have responded to different kinds of audiences and different ways of approaching the institution. Um, and I know, Kirsten, there's the, the, the bank of opportunity with, with the, the suplexes. Yeah, so, so as part of the, um, the, the swings that are in the one, two, three swing, the superflex Danish uh, collective, the swings in Turbanhoe, if anyone's not been yet, go and have a swing. Um, we have, um, we, as part of that, we have something called the Bank of Opportunities. So the artists want the swings to break out of the gallery into the immediate vicinity outside Tate Modern and then out into London and then around the world. And what can we do if, if, if there's if swings and how can that affect people's lives? So we've, we're more and more um, kind of encouraging um, visitor-generated uh, responses, and that's one of the ways we're doing it. So we have a... Um, we've got a map of the world and people can put stickers on the map of the world where they would like to see the, the uh, swings to appear and kind of writing something about where they would like them to come and, uh, and uh, why they would like that. Um, and that's kind of following on from, we've obviously had for the Turner Prize for many years, has had the comments board, so people making a comment on um, the artists in the, in the uh, Turner uh, Prize. Um, and lots of visitors saying that they enjoyed that section as much as the rest of the exhibition sometimes. But um, we again, we did the same thing for in the recent Queer British Art exhibition at um, Tate Britain, where we had a, a, a room at the end where we started off by asking visitors for their own personal response to particular artworks in the show, and then turned those into captions and actually had them in the exhibition next to the kind of institutional voice, then we had people's own personal response to them. But it just turned into this, a kind of had a life of its own, this amazing um, area where people, kind of at the heart of the exhibition, but people spent a lot of time in there, spending time really, really thinking about their response to the show. So we got some really beautiful, kind of personal, heartfelt um, responses about about the subject in the show and people made amazing drawings and and when we've kind of kept all of them so we're thinking now what we can do about it but that's a way where people have just given the opportunity to to respond and um just you know re really take making the most of that opportunity and that is lovely isn't it because as a viewer you can also go and have a look at what other people have written and how yeah. other people responded and that becomes some part of, of the best comments are people making comments about <laughs> the comments <laughs> jill in terms of this institutional warming up and responding yeah. so to i think in in um, the last five years we've done quite a lot of work to move away from um what was a very large scale as i, as I mentioned earlier transmission model i don't know if everyone knows what that means but someone standing telling you all about what the art on the wall means and about five years ago i started to feel quite anxious about that um and uh, uh, this is a, a a bit of confessional now. Um, I'm like an art educator all, all my professional life, and I became very conscious that all we do is talk, 
our whole trade is based upon verbal information, verbal explanation, and, or, I mean, I think that's changed quite a lot, to be honest, in recent years, but I became really conscious that we're very dependent upon language to do almost everything that we do. It might not all be one-way transmission anymore, it might be more inquiry or dialogue-focused, but it still requires verbal exchange, and it still usually requires standing between the thing on the wall in the National Gallery, because we only have things on the wall, um, and the audience. So literally getting between the audience and the thing that they are supposedly there to have a direct experience of. So we did start very consciously experimenting with removing language, and we'd done that through experimenting with complete silence, as Cathy alluded to earlier, and also through movement. I want to show some pictures to illustrate this, if that's all right. I'm going to have to skip over um, your slides here a little bit, Kathy, but maybe we can look at them. So this is, this is what Kathy was actually talking about earlier, an, an event. Well, this was a one-off event that we've turned into a series. It's called Looking Without Talking, and actually it was inspired by a Vermeer exhibition in 2013 called Vermeer and Music, and again, this is a confession, I got so fed up of sitting in meetings talking about music that I decided um, we have to do something else with this exhibition too. And for me, there isn't a Vermeer on the wall here, on this slide rather, but for me, Vermeer is one of the most resoundingly quiet artists in our collection. So the idea to counteract the music was to start experimenting with silence. And we couldn't do it in the exhibition, so we did it in the galleries that are full of the art of Vermeer's contemporaries. And we turned the labels round so no one could read them. We, we worked with the engineers to turn the lights off, spotlight pictures. We spent a lot of time positioning seats carefully. This is the behind the scenes stuff you don't find out about a lot of time. Sitting in chairs with colleagues, making sure there was nothing in anyone else's peripheral vision. And on the night, when the public came in and were instructed to sit down and not move the chair, um, what we, basically 20 people at a time, were able to have a completely silent experience in the dark with Rembrandt, de Hoek, and other artists from uh, the 17th century Dutch part of the collection in total silence without any information, without any disruption for five minutes. And then we asked everyone who participated a series of questions afterwards to find out just exactly what that experience had been like for them. And one of the uncomfortable findings of this was that if you leave, if you create the right conditions, and we put a lot of work into doing that, and then leave someone to have a quiet experience on their own, looking, adjusting the eye, standing up, taking a closer look, just keeping at it. Because one thing I would say is I think looking at art is difficult. It's not supposed to be easy, and sometimes we try very hard to encourage people to think it's easy, but this project didn't do that. And what we discovered that was that in the space of five minutes, some people were able to get quite far in their looking without even knowing what they were looking at and actually were taken to the same sorts of conclusions that they might have been if we'd done a Q&A with them. So it kind of started to reveal to us that there might be occasions where we were doing far too much talking in the belief that it was helping, when actually there are other ways to encourage people to have that really direct experience, which might not involve art history and might not involve biography, but still involves them having a connection and an understanding of what they see on the wall in front of them. So that's turned into a huge strand of work for us now, all these years later. And one other thing, I'm going to skip 
that and just show you this because it does connect. I was thinking about this earlier when um, we were talking about the swings in Tate Modern. Um, another project involving movement that we did with dance artists where I was mindful that the way this was advertised, again, if any of you came to that, I do apologise if you were misled by the way it was described. You may have thought you were coming to watch dancers perform a show in the National Gallery when in actual fact what they did was use their own knowledge of their own physical um, presence and their, uh, and their own physiognomy to um, enable visitors to have an embodied experience of the gallery's collection. So in this um, picture you can see a tourist from New Zealand on our first ever visit to the National Gallery being carried across the British galleries while looking at the Turners without having to support her own body weight by five choreographers who knew exactly what they're doing. I'm not going to suggest any practitioners try this because I wouldn't, but they knew what they were doing physically and that tourist said she'll never forget her first visit to the National Gallery <laughs> and that she spent longer looking at the Turners than she would have if she had just walked through the galleries and that she found the experience sublime and here someone just about to be lifted up off the ground to eyeball Stubbs whistle jacket. I really wish I had a photograph of him right up in the air but again that's obviously not the kind of thing that can happen on a daily basis but the response from the participants who had this really physical, visceral experience in the gallery was quite extraordinary. And we did actually evaluate all of this, don't really, that's a story for another time. And when we tracked the words that were used to describe different experiences, the dial was of course going right up for the people using the word informative who'd listened to a talk. But for experiences like this, they were saying things like unforgettable, emotional, connected, and visceral, and, and experiential, which is really what we were trying to gauge was, are there ways of providing powerful experiences, direct engagement with the art without actually telling someone everything that there is to know about it? One of the, just mentioning briefly, because you're talking uh, your slide about spending time with the art, um, in one of the, at Tate Modern, we've got a display called the Start, Start Gallery, encouraging people who don't necessarily have kind of expertise and knowledge in art to start their journey there. And then one of, and we're just giving them some instructions just to go away and kind of think about it, not trying to tell them about any of the art, but just saying kind of spend time with it. And also, I think really importantly, you don't have to like everything. It's fine. You can, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, information and experience and the, the balance between the two. Um, I'm wondering if we could maybe go to our audience now and just see if there, there are any questions that, that people might have. Well, we're getting, uh, we've got microphones. If you could kindly just wait until the, the microphone reaches. We do have a question here from the lady in the orange coat. I hope I'm describing the colours correctly. I'm always careful in this light. And I think there was somebody behind, behind you Next, yes, this lady just, yeah, please do Hi, go ahead. you're talking a bit about making visitors feel more comfortable in a museum environment. I was wondering what you thought about um, those artists, activist groups that take that a bit to the extreme. So in the Tate two years ago, there was the group called Liberate Tate was in there that was protesting against BP sponsorship of the gallery. And uh, they were just doing things like sitting on the floor and drawing on chalk for 25 hours, but... As a person from the education department, what do you think of that? And are there differences between you and your colleagues from other departments? Because that's quite a different, I suppose, form of public engagement 
than what has been discussed today, a bit more confrontational. Thank you. Okay, I, I guess that's a question about, again, about what comes between the public and, and the artwork, and in a way, rather than something that's helping people to understand what happens when something starts to get in the way, like an obstacle. Am I interpreting that correctly? The artwork is more critique of the institution and how do educators come and interact with that because maybe colleagues might get a bit more invested in that. I don't know, maybe not. Okay, thanks for finessing that for us. Critique of the institution. I'm not sure how, if I'm in the position to be able to answer that about how, because I think the institution probably would think about things like Liberate Hate and, and things in a, in a kind of a different way. I think it's... Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that when people kind of come in and then they're protesting about something and, and that it's all kind of forms of, of it, other visitors there can respond to when people are doing that and it's, and it's you know, kind of an interesting um, way. You could call it interpretation in a way and I suppose if they're kind of responding to... But, in the, but because in that particular instance they're responding to the sponsorship of the gallery rather than in particular artworks... Um, and it is kind of slightly to uh, t a tangent, so I don't know. But what we, uh, I think it's really, I think it's interesting that there's there's an organisation that did a kind of an, a kind of alternative audio tour of the gallery, um, and so I, I mean I think that kind of thing is always really interesting, and and I think that we'd be encouraged to have kind of guerrilla. Uh, audio tours or, or kind of approaches to artworks in, in that way. Yeah, why not? Thanks, thanks very much. Jill, do you want to come on to that? Or Kathy, do you want to come back on that? If not, we'll go to, um, we'll go to, the, next, to the next question. The, the uh, lady there with the, um, just a couple of, about four rows back, just on, on that side, yeah. Great, thanks. Hi, um, just on the nature of getting the audience to engage more with looking at artworks, have you ever considered um, sort of instead of just the labels having a set of questions around an artwork or allowing the public to actually um, post questions about the artworks, get people to engage in more of a discourse with it rather than be told information about it? So we do that in the Start Gallery. We are with... Um for each of the artworks, is the very first thing that visitors will see on the caption is a question. And the theme of the display is colour. So it's something to do with colour, but relates specifically to that artwork. And I think we're really keen to do more of that. So we have started to put more questions on text panels. Um, and we also, in the different, um, they're called explore spaces, that uh, kind of bring out different aspects of different displays. Then we ask people questions because that's a really great way for just giving people a little hint about thinking about things in more depth themselves and we've um we we actually have asked over social media for people to tell us what they want us to talk about <laughs> which we did do but that's you know i mean we yeah, that that was challenging but we've been sort of, I think, using our social, well, working with our social media team to try to get those dialogues going a little bit better than they have in the past. Kathy, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Can, I, can I just, what's happened to it? Okay. Um, 
I know there's not really time to go into this in detail, but I just want to quickly mention some of the things that I've done that are outside of the gallery space and about interrupting and intervening in public space or semi-public space anyway, that you would go into and expect to be a certain way and has been changed. So the artwork has become part of that space and then the audience is actually in the artwork and becomes part of the artwork. And there's lots of examples of this, isn't there, as an art practice. So I don't want to go off too, too much of a tangent, but this is a piece that I made on top of the bar in the academician's room, which, which we've just been in, which is called Top Shelf. So the bar, which is normally empty, became a, 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 a space for an installation, which was there for a year, which almost became part of the room. And the, this is the installation that I made in the Royal Academy <coughs> Life Room, where small audiences were given a chance to go into the schools and into the historic life room and experience this installation which I had built of my work, which kind of looked like a work-in-progress studio. So you were getting right up close to the artist and to the work. You could sit in the, in the historic chairs, and uh, audiences spent about an hour in there um, on average. Um, and they had tours, tours by the students, so the, the students at the schools um, who'd kind of done tutorials with me gave a tour to the audience, so they got practice at public speaking, and the audience had chance to feedback and talk and ask questions, and they were also drawing in there as well. And then at the end of that project, I did a, a, a weekend project in there where we were building and making sculpture together with 10 people. So that's a kind of much more sort of interactive and not a gallery experience at all, just an, another kind of way of um, experiencing art. Well, we've um, sometimes, Offer drawing in the in the um, displays, and that's hugely popular with visitors. Mm. Uh, we, thanks. We've got just a question here from this uh, lady on the side here, and then to you, ma'am, after, afterwards. Hiya. Um, how do you decide which artists to show in exhibitions? Like, how do you decide like that they're notable enough to be shown to the public? Um, I think that's kind of a curatorial question, isn't it, in terms of the, the decision-making. Um, just to, to, to lay things out, that um, one of the things we talked about earlier were the kind of different kinds of discussions that go on within institutions between curators, people in learning or education departments, and people who do interpretation. It's called different things in different, different institutions. So I hope I'm not taking things over and saying that really is, would be a question for curators in most institutions, the curators would decide which artist would be, would be profiled in what order. If you have a uh, collecting institution, sometimes it's in relation to the collection and developing the collection, and we've got collecting institutions represented here, but in non-collecting institutions, there might be any manner of reasons why a, a curator would, would make, a, make a choice for, a, for an artist. Usually a collective decision, unless there's a very powerful curator or director who absolutely has to get their way. So I hope that answers your question and we'll, we'll come to the, the lady here. Thanks. Uh, when I go to museums you often see groups of young people sitting in front of a picture and you'll see a docent or somebody instructing them and telling them, well, giving them information about the, the picture. Do you think this is a good way to get young people interested in art? Great question. Yes. <laughs> right answer. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, it's fundamental in 
young people from like from babies um, up to have had direct ex to, to be able to have direct experience of art. Uh, what you described sounds like a school a school group visit, um, and they they look this they look similar, no matter which uh, part of the world you encounter that in. Um, I think. They absolutely are vital parts of uh, visual literacy, visual art education. However, I think I'll just add to that that um, whereas in the past it's been possible to deliver largely facilitated models of art education to children on site, that is becoming more and more difficult now because year on year most institutions' numbers are dropping when it comes to their school visits because it's becoming harder and harder to bring the kids out of the classroom. So whilst I do absolutely believe that there will always be a role and a place for facilitating high quality teaching sessions in front of the real art itself, we are now going to have to start across the sector working very hard to find other ways to engage not just the kids but also the teachers and critically the parents or guardians of all of those kids so that they are all understanding what a cultural education can contribute to the overarching um, education itself. So it, it's becoming more and more difficult and we may have to take things off site, we may have to do more outreach, we may have to work very, very carefully to work out how digital can support the continuation of a visual art education but doing it in front of the real thing, whether it's a painting, a sculpture, an object, will always be a very critical part of that. That's great, wonderful. Yeah, quite right. So I was just going to come out with my neutrality of the chair to support that campaign note. But we've got this, this gentleman here. Um. You've only briefly touched on technology as a multiplier and um, the, the effect it can have. Um, clunky audio guys being one of them. Why do we need those anymore? Well, we've all got phones, iPads, etc. Uh, I love galleries, but you, you know why can't we have high-definition tours of the same thing that you sell for three ninety-nine on? things like that, virtual collections. I don't think you've really explored that. I'm sure you're thinking about it, of course. Okay, and yeah. Education for schools, of course. Yeah, yeah, thank you, very, thank you very much. I mean, it's about taking forward the, the digital, the opportunities which are offered, offered by, by digital. I suspect that these are discussions going on in institutions. I mean, we were talking earlier about, I, I don't know, I call it the James Bond wall in, in, in Tate Modern, which is this incredible uh, screen which you can move around and, and play with, which is quite a recent uh, uh, addition, I think. But I, I imagine Digital these discussions, yeah. sorry? The timeline. The timeline, great, thank you. But I, I guess these are discussions going on at the moment, are they, or am, am, I, am I wrong in, in the institutions at the moment, how to expand the digital? So that's taking the artworks out of the gallery and so people can look at them in their own home, because um, obviously there's no substitute for actually standing in front of the artwork. But we are, as you said, we're using technology to do things like having timelines and we have a very successful uh, drawing bar at Tate Modern so you can use iPads to draw pictures and that have been inspired by different parts of the collection. But yeah, I think that organisations like Google are looking at, looking at high definition um, artworks outside the gallery. 
Yeah, I, I just think it's wonderful that people are thinking in these ways and having this, this, putting these things on the agenda. It's always an ongoing uh, conversation, I think, to try to move the discussion forward. Um, I'm just aware of the time, and I, I would love to prolong the discussion a, a little more, but um, we did get that image of your wonderful work uh, on the bar. I think that's planted a few seeds in people's minds um, on, on, this, uh, on this wonderful Friday autumn evening. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any further questions for us. Yes, sir, would you? I'd love to call you the gentleman with the beard, but I, think I, I feel a bit, a bit obvious in, in saying that. So. Um, do you do anything to measure the effects that different kinds of interpretation have on how the visitors behave in the gallery? So, for instance, um, do different types of interpretation make them spend longer in front of particular works or um, examine works more closely, things like that? Yes, um, we have done a number of things to track that, and that can range from like thermal mapping to um, what I touched on earlier, where, where we've asked people to provide us with information, but we've become a little, we've tried to move away from the fact, hope you had a nice time now, will you fill out this questionnaire? We've kind of tried to move away from that a bit um, in order to measure different sorts of things. And so one of the things that we did manage to capture last year was the sorts of ways in which people would describe their own experience if they had attended a lecture, if they'd attended a talk in front of a painting, if they'd attended a practical art session, or if they'd stumbled across someone doing something that looked a bit strange. And we did actually measure those things against each other, but that actually, what we got back, of course, were the verbal responses of people dis verbally describing what their experience had been like. And I'm not very sure where we're going to go with this next, because I'd quite like to start wiring people up to monitors and things like that, but I'm not sure how easy it is to do that. So like, I think we've still got a little bit of a way to go to work out exactly, especially if, it's, if you're looking for a kind of physical response or a, a more embodied response over an intellectual one. And we have um, undertaken evaluation in the past where we've written different types of captions. So somebody has a different voice, have, have used a different kind of expert, and then, but it is again, just asking people how they think, you know, which one they prefer. There are ways of, of kind of trying to be more sophisticated, I'm sure. Yeah, so at this stage of the evening, questions start to run together. And I've got this, this gentleman's question with the other question about Google and all the rest of it. So maybe there could be a brave new world of, uh, of uh, museum interpretation uh, to come. Um, I think we're coming to the end of our evening now. Um, I don't know if there was one of the burning, is it a burning question? Yes, let it burn. And. Uh, Burn brightly. I had one question about something you said, Jill, about different approaches outside London. Um, and we've spoken a lot about the kind of approaches of big, you know, uh, institutions in our capital city. And I'm wondering about smaller institutions um, and whether you could talk a little bit about those ones that you were um, referring to. And also, I wondered um, whether there's a chance that smaller institutions have a kind of chance to be a bit more nimble, quicker on their feet and able to take chances in a way that kind of larger institutions aren't, perhaps? I think that's probably true. Um, I, uh, I'm going to have to just sort of now think of a couple of examples so that we're not here for another half an hour. But 
Um, I would refer to a piece of research I did like in 2010-2011 about interpretation. Actually, my focus was who should write, not what should be written. I actually looked intensively across examples from um, the length of the UK about who should be doing the writing, who was doing the writing in different locations and what the process was. Uh, because of my own unfaltering belief that the subject specialist is not always the best person to do that writing. I don't mean that at all times. Sometimes it works fine. But I'm not convinced that that is the best model. However, it seems to be the model that's most in use. Now, I found a few examples um, from across the UK. Uh, the, 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 the one that immediately springs to mind might not be the best one is Kelvin Grove where they moved from analysis to storytelling and were heavily criticised for it. And I'm just going to back up what I'm about to say by making sure everyone realises I worked at Kelvin Grove in 2006 and I didn't at the time like what the, what the approach that was taken there. And I, about three or four years later, I went back as a visitor and loved it. So it's possible to, obviously, all of us as individuals will change our view of how we interpret stuff over time. But they made a very purposeful transition from analysis to storytelling. And I think in, a, in many ways it was a great success. The art critics hated it, and maybe that's a good measure of just what a great <laughs> success it was. Another good example also from Scotland is the Robert Burns Birthplace Museum, where they went down the show-not-tell route. And the director at the time, Nat Edwards, said to me, basically, you've got to get everyone to slaughter their darlings to get the interpretation right, because everybody who knows a lot, in that case about Burns, wants to tell the world everything that they know about this subject, and that's not going to help tell the story. And the thing I kept hearing was, tell the story, tell the story, not don't give lots of analysis of the object, tell the story. And the people who focused on telling this, not just telling the story, but telling the story really well, are the ones where the interpretation has ended up being really strong. And also not shying away from doing something like using um, a dialect, or at the case, in the case of Barnes, using the Scots um, language on the walls and in some of the labels. And what I observed there was people walking around that the, the whole experience from the, the actual cottage itself through to the, birth, the Burns Birthplace Museum that opened, I think, in 2010, reading everything out loud because they wanted to know what it sounded like, whether they were Scottish or not. So there was something kind of wonderful about hearing people from all over the world who were there on tour with tourist buses, reading it all aloud and then going into the cafe and ordering Ayrshire Stovies. They were really <laughs> getting the full experience, well, as much of an experience as you can. So I found that like that, the language thing is something that's really interesting. The storytelling is really interesting. I think this is being done really well in a lot of smaller um, museums around the UK. And I think sometimes it is because there are shoestring staff and budgets. And one of my favorite examples is Wolverhampton City Art Gallery, where they actually put together the most amazing interpretation, partly as a response to a cut in their funding. And they came up with a cross-departmental team that had what I got as close as I could find to 
a genuine sort of trading zone scenario where everybody was respecting each other's expertise and taking it in turns to lead the process and step out of the process. And as a result, the interpretation was really informative, but also it was true, to, it was sort of true to its locality and it was compelling as a story. It's one of the best examples I could find. And um, trying to think of one more example just to finish with. I think Walsall, the new art gallery in Walsall, had a very interesting approach to interpretation. And the example that I can recall was of Deborah Robinson, um, the curator there, saying, well, we've tried to do away with the authoritative voice because who wants to hear me banging on about the art all the time? And they, her example, I think the exhibition I saw at the time was Gary Hume and the text had been written by his partner and it was handwritten. And there was something really compelling about the fact it had been written not by the artist, but by someone who knew him well, and that it was handwritten. And so there was also something there about the, the tyranny of black and white text on a wall, and the fear that people have of being less formal with it. So I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah, that's, really, that's a really full answer. I think took us on a very useful tour of some places across across the country, um, which often people don't want to think of. So thank you for that question to, for, for leading, leading us there. Um, I do hope that uh, you will have the opportunity, so those of you who haven't had the opportunity um, to come back here to the Royal Academy for the Jasper Johns uh, show, uh, and perhaps to mull over some of the, the questions and the debate that's been taking place in the room this evening. Um, I certainly obviously have added to my understanding of uh, the main questions or some of the big issues in relation to this journey from uh, information and authority to uh, interpretation, to engagement, to learning, and to warming up. Um, I hope you'll join with me in thanking our panel heartily this evening. It's been a wonderful evening to just hear some new thinking and to get a sense of, of what's actually happening across the country today. So please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.